Yesterday, I uh, I took our one-year-old son Trenton to urgent care, and this seems to be like a kind of like a bi-monthly thing that, that we do in our family. Some kid gets to go to urgent care, and and he'd been acting a little fussy for a few days, and he hadn't been sleeping very well. And we kind of just decided, okay, you know, let's let's take him somewhere, and, it, and it's just easier, right, to just hit up, like, urgent care on Saturday than it is, like, try to make an appointment and get somewhere in your already crazy, busy week, and, and honestly, I, I kind of thought I would just go there, and and the doctor would be like, you know, uh, give him some ibuprofen, he's, he's got a little temperature, you know, but everything's going to be fine, but, but as I started talking to the doctor, uh, I was telling him how, you know, Trenton, he hadn't been sleeping very well, he had this kind of slight temperature at times, and, but what scared me most was he, he seemed to be kind of short on breathing. On, on a Friday night, uh, when I was trying to get him back to sleep, I was holding him real close to me, and I could just feel like he was just breathing really fast, and you could kind of tell it was like these shallow breaths just that he was taking really quickly, and and so, you know, the doctor started listening uh, to Trenton's breathing, and, and while he was doing that, I, I said, you know, by the way, um, Trenton's sister had pneumonia, and the doctor was like, what was that? And I said, his his sister had pneumonia the other day, and, and I didn't know this, maybe you guys are smarter than I am, uh, maybe maybe you're better parents uh, than we are, but I guess some strands of pneumonia are actually contagious, it's like a really rare thing to happen, but you can actually get that, and so the reason he was so, you know, like he wanted to know what I said is because he was hearing something on the lung that he, he wasn't quite sure about, it, it didn't sound quite right, and so he wanted to take some x-rays, and, and I'm not sure if you've ever done x-rays uh, with a one-year-old. It's not fun. I wouldn't plan that for your weekend uh, next weekend, but, but you know, the, the x-ray tech came into the room, and, and he started you know, kind of briefing me on what was going to happen, and he was just very serious that neither Trenton nor myself was going to enjoy this process. Like, he kept emphasizing that, and, and I was kind of thinking in my head, like, there's a reason you're an x-ray tech, right? Like, he's not, it wasn't super great with people. He just kept telling me that this this process was not going to be fun, and I kind of kept thinking in my head, well, surely it's not going to be that bad, right? And then I walked in the x-ray room, and I saw this. This is the pediograph immobilizer, okay? This is, I went home, and I drew a little picture. This is a real thing. I don't know if you've ever had to do chest, uh, chest x-rays uh, for your little one, but this is what we put Trenton into, okay? So we, basically, his legs go down on this kind of little saddle thing. He, he sits on it, and then we have to close him into this, this plastic with his arms above his head, and he just sits like that. And all I could do is I could just stand there and I could hold his hands so that he wouldn't try to fit them down inside. And I could hold his hands and I could talk to him. But obviously, you know, he was in this, like, tube. And, and so I couldn't get very close to him. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable, right? I'm sure he didn't enjoy it. I bet he felt like he was trapped there just wanting someone to let him out. And, and I'm sure he felt completely powerless, Right? And I knew that I felt powerless. Like, I wanted nothing more than just to, let's open this thing up, let's get him, let's put him in my arms, right? I want to I hold him and, and kiss him and tell him that he's safe, that he doesn't have to worry about anything. And, and so, you know, it turns out there was a little spot of something going on in his lungs, nothing that, just some antibiotics and some other things uh, can't clear up in, in a few days. Uh, but while we were taking those x-rays, I, I just couldn't help but think about what I was going to be talking about today. And I'd already studied a, a little bit and, and started this message, but uh, whenever I opened up the, the email to remember what I was speaking about, it was the Holy Spirit is power. And, and there's been a lot of moments in, in my last few weeks, kind of like that one with Trenton, where I've just felt completely powerless, right? Like things are just out of my control, uh, things that I just can't even handle. And, and I'm sure some of you walk in here today maybe feeling a little a little trapped, a little powerless on your own, maybe spiritually things aren't quite where you would like them 
to be. And let me just say this. Let me just say I'm with you. Like I understand, and and I think sometimes we get this idea because, you know, Jeff or me or Matt or whoever uh, gets to stand up on a stage with lights and a microphone, that that means that we have things figured out more than you do. And and, uh, we're just trying to journey with God. And and this morning, believe me, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm still trying to figure out what it means for him to guide and direct my life and trying to do that in every way that I can. And, and my hope is that as we talk about the Holy Spirit today and through the next few weeks, is that you and I together will be able to tap into that power uh, that God has and, and that, that power that he desires for us to experience in our lives. And, and so we are kind of on the, the last phase, I guess we could say, of this series, Trying God, that we've been in. And as Jeff said, we've talked about Father, you know, the Father, and we've talked about uh, Jesus the Son, and now we get to talk about the Holy Spirit, and, and we've shown you this tool a few times, but I want to put this back up about the Trinity, and we've gone through this, how, you know, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are all God, right, but, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and not the Holy Spirit, and you don't need me to read all of them to you, you can kind of make sense of this diagram, uh, but, you know, it puts a, a proper focus, you know, on to, to who is what, and what they're doing. And, and before we really kind of dive into what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, I, I do want to say that, you know, I've been around churches my entire life, and so I've seen a lot of really good things. Uh, I've seen some not good things as well. But through those experiences, I, I've kind of noticed that churches typically, they fall into one of two camps, I would say. I would say the first, they put so much focus on the Spirit uh, that they tend to neglect Jesus and the Father, uh, they put their focus a lot of times on, on movements of the Spirit. And it's kind of all about what's happening in that moment and what God is saying maybe to that individual specifically. And, and sometimes this can create a very individualistic faith and, and I think at times even contradict teachings that are very clear in the Bible. And then the second camp, uh, I would say that they put so much attention on, on probably Jesus mostly, but Jesus and the Father that they tend to neglect the Spirit Uh, Francis Chan, a very popular Christian author, he wrote a book a few years ago about the Holy Spirit, and he titled it The Forgotten God. And and that title has always haunted me, I think mainly because it's it's true, right? And we tend to neglect the Spirit as we talk about the other parts of the Trinities. And oftentimes, churches over in this camp, we we tend to, to talk a lot more about doctrine and life application than we do being guided or being prompted by the Spirit. And if I'm being honest, this is kind of the camp that I grew up in. Okay, this is where I've been at. And, and I would say if our church here leans a direction, it's probably over here as well. And I'm not saying that to bash our church. I, I'm not saying that we don't believe in the Spirit. I'm not saying that we think less of the Spirit. I'm not even saying that we do it on purpose. But I think if we honestly examine ourselves, uh, we're a lot more comfortable, at least I'm a lot more comfortable talking about Jesus and God the Father than I'm the Spirit. Because I find a lot more verses in the Bible about those two. I can understand a lot more about those two than I can the Spirit. And the Spirit is hard, and the Spirit is uncomfortable. And and as Jeff said in his prayer, he said his word, it's mysterious. And I would even go as far as to say, I I think it's supposed to be. I think that's the way that God intends it to be. And so my encouragement this morning is be okay with that mystery. And and this morning, we're just going to barely scratch the surface of what we can talk about, but but as we do, just be okay with not knowing everything, right? I know for some of you, that like drives you crazy. You want all of the answers. Be okay with not knowing everything. And, and just be willing to dive in and to just grow alongside of us. And God and Jesus and Spirit, they are all God. 
yet they're all distinct. And, and I think we get to see this in some pretty cool ways throughout Scripture. And in the Old Testament, the, the focus is primarily on God the Father, right? I mean, if you read through it, it's all about God and what he's, usually, what he's doing. And, and usually what happens in the Old Testament is that the, the Father communicates directly to a person or a leader, right? Like, he speaks directly to Noah or Abraham or Moses, or, or God the Father speaks to a prophet, and, and he tells them what to say, and he tells them who to say it to. It, it's the Father uh, that, is, that is worshipped, you know, or, or followed by the kings, or, or maybe neglected by the king that is in power. It's the Father that had his presence dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, and later in the Holy of Holies. But then there comes this period, it's called the intertestimonial, or intertestamental period. It's the time basically between the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the book of Matthew. Okay? So it's that, that span that happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In your Bible, that's probably about one page, right? but in history, that's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and so during this time, Israel's in captivity, so they had no king of their own. There's no recorded prophets, right? I mean, the last prophetic book we get is Malachi, so there's no prophets being added there. And those are the two major ways that God communicates. And so most scholars believe that God is just silent during this time. I mean, just think about that. You and I, like, we get mad when God doesn't answer our prayer in, like, 20 minutes, right? We're like, God, where are you in 400 years? I mean, that's people being born, growing up, dying, their, their kids growing up, you know, living, dying, their kids, nothing from God. No new revelations, no new words from God, nothing. And they had to be thinking, you know, like, now what, right? What, what do we do from here? Where are you, God? What are, what are you up to? And I just imagine the people being discouraged and worried. And I don't think they ever could have imagined what God had planned. Instead of sending God, you know, Instead of God sending out like a new prophet or, or instead of him overthrowing the government and giving them a new king, he sends them a baby instead, right? And so after 400 years of silence, God puts into motion this plan that's going to take at least 30 years to really even start, right? And so just more waiting. I think God sometimes he operates more like a crockpot than a microwave. You know, he doesn't quite, doesn't quite work on our schedule. But this baby grows up, obviously becomes a man, a teacher, and a leader, and this was God in the flesh. It was fully man, fully God, as we talked about the last few weeks. And, and, and throughout, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we have accounts of Jesus' teaching and preaching and healing and, and the, the miracles that he performed. And he's shown us a, a literal, just tangible version of God. And, and things seemed to be pretty awesome for Jesus and his ministry, right? He had this inner circle of a few people that he hung out with, and then he had his 12 disciples, and then he had, like, crowds and crowds of groupies that, that just followed him around and did, you know, whatever Jesus asked them to do. And, and it seemed that Jesus was really building something great here. Like, today we'd say, man, he has a really good brand, right? Or he's got this following, or Jesus, you know, he had this tribe with him. And, it, you know, if I was a Jew there and I was following Jesus, I would probably be thinking, man, all these things in the Old Testament that, that we've read about, they're all finally going to happen, right? Jesus is going to do this stuff. It's going to be awesome, right? And then the cross happens. And just imagine, if you were a follower of Jesus, what that must have felt like, right? Just a, just a punch in the gut. Like, everything you had worked for, everything that you had believed was gone. I mean, some of these people, they'd given up families, Right? They'd given up their homes. They'd, some of them had dedicated the past three years to following Jesus. 
And they were about to go home and be mocked by their friends and their family because of what they had done with their time. But then the news starts spreading that Jesus, he's back, right? He's conquered, he's conquered the grave. He's defeated death. And of course, it's true. They get to see him. They talk to him. The, the Bible says that, that he met with over 500 people during this time after his resurrection. And then uh, we're going to read out of the book of Acts this morning. So if you have a Bible uh, with you, go ahead and, and open it up. It's Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And uh, it's page number 755 if you're using the Bibles underneath your seat. Uh, or you can also follow along using uh, the YouVersion app as well. And uh, this morning we're going to be in verse 3 of chapter 1. And it says, After his suffering, his being Jesus, he presented himself to them, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? So the disciples here, they totally miss it, right? Jesus says, hey, something special's coming, right? I've already told you about it, so it shouldn't be surprised, but you're going to get a gift, okay? You're, you're going to get baptized, you're going to get thrown into, you're going to get completely immersed into the Spirit, and they're like, hey, when are you setting up the kingdom? Right? Like, do you need help? Like, is there anything that we can do? Like, you, you want help carrying your throne? Can I stand by you whenever you do it? Like, they're, they're a completely different place. And, and Jesus kind of just gently redirects them, right, back to where they need to be. And he says in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he sa- after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking in the sky? This is the same Jesus who had who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you have seen him go. And so we, we find these followers of Jesus, right? They're, they're staring in the sky, and they're thinking, well, now what, right? You know, Jesus left, and, and they're not going to have to wait 400 years to find their answer. But they're sitting here, well, well what do we do now? And I don't think they had any idea, you know, just they had no idea what Jesus had planned for them. They couldn't comprehend what was about to happen. They're just thinking, well, where did Jesus go? What are we supposed to do? And I imagine in in those few brief moments, they were feeling discouraged and worried as well. But of course, their wait is not very long. The Spirit um, is coming to them in just a few days in ways beyond their imagination. And and so in the first part of the Bible, we have, you know, over half of what's recorded. The Old Testament is God using patriarchs and judges and kings and and prophets to speak to his people. And this is kind of the, the model that that God uses is he speaks to one person and that person kind of, you know, reaches the masses. That's the model that he uses. And then as we start the New Testament, we have Jesus and and Jesus comes and and Jesus is a better patriarch and a better judge and a better king and a better prophet. And, And for 33 years, Jesus is literally God in the flesh. I mean, he's part of the Trinity walking around on the earth and, and this is great, right? But then Jesus very clearly says in his ministry that something different is coming. 
Something's going to change and it's going to be better. John 16, 7, Jesus says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, which is one of the the multiple names used in Scripture uh, for the Spirit, he says, The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So, So Jesus, who is God in the flesh, right, says it is good for you that I'm going away. We've got to be like, well, well, how can that be good, right? That doesn't make any sense. What can be better than Jesus? But on this side of history, we can, we can look back and we can see and understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus was limited on earth by a physical body, right? He could only be in one place at one time. He could only speak to so many at one time. He could only touch and heal and provide for so many. And there's even, there's moments in scripture when Jesus, he's worn down and he's tired from the crowds, right? And he, he goes off to rest. And, and Jesus kind of had like their, their equivalent of like the paparazzi around him at all times, right? Except instead of wanting like pictures and videos, uh, they want to follow him around and they want, they want healed and they want counseling and therapy and, and they want to talk to Jesus and they want to touch him. And Jesus was in a human body and there was only so much that he could do. But he says, hey, just wait. Something better is coming. Soon you're going to be filled with power. And a few days after Jesus ascends to heaven, his followers, they're still gathered in Jerusalem. And it's hard to know if they're being obedient to that last thing that Jesus said or if they're just kind of there because they don't know what to do, right? I kind of lean towards the latter. I think they were confused and they were lost. And, and we also know that the Festival of Wheats, or what we would call Pentecost, was, was taking place in Jerusalem at this time. And so, you know, some of them were probably kind of returning to the old traditions, uh, that they, the old ways that they had worshipped before. And so in Acts chapter 2, if you want to flip over to the second chapter, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tons of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Bible, if you go to read on it, it tells about, like, I counted at least 15, maybe more different groups or nationalities or, or ethnicities of people that were in Jerusalem. It says that every single one of them heard what they were saying in their own language. They heard the good news in their own language, and, and people started being like, well, what's going on here, right? I mean, this is, this is pretty amazing what's, what's happening here. But some of them doubted, right? There's always some doubters, and it doesn't matter how amazing, it doesn't matter how miraculous it is. Uh, part of the, the crowd, it, it says they were joking, they were saying that these men were drunk, right? They're like, oh, they've just had too much wine. That's what's going on. And so then Peter stands up and he gets, he gets the 11 uh, disciples with him and they get up on, on this stage, I guess, and, and he delivers kind of the first Christian sermon. In verse 14 it says, Then Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. All right? Peter's got a little, he's got a little sense of humor, right? No, this, was not, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. So from here on, he's beginning to quote the Old Testament, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit 
in those days, and they will prophesy. So Peter, he stands up and he quotes this passage that everyone in the crowd would have known. Right? I mean, most of, these, most of these men, they went off to school and they, w- they would have learned this passage. They would have memorized it as young men. And he tells them, hey, what you know, this passage you guys have learned word for word, this is happening right in front of your eyes. And we can't overemphasize the importance of what is said in Joel chapter 2. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just some people. Right, not just highly talented leaders, not just kings and prophets. This isn't the old model anymore. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. And then he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This isn't just for men, right? This is a a men and a women thing. This isn't just for the young and the, the naive or the old and the wise. This is for everyone. He says, even on my servants, I will pour out my spirit. This isn't for the rich. This isn't for the famous. This isn't for the spiritually elite. This is for everyone. And this is the moment that a dramatic shift takes place in Scripture. Because no longer do people have to go to the temple to experience God. No longer do they have to be chosen, you know, like one out of a million to hear the voice of God. No longer do they have to live in the right time, in the right period, in the right geographic place just to experience God. Now the Spirit has descended, and it's available for all people. And this is good news, right? This is really good news. A few years ago, I took a class on the Holy Spirit, and and I pulled out my notes from, from the 19 lectures that I listened to for that class. So this shouldn't take but just a few minutes for me to cover all of it. Uh, but I did. I, I found one little note, nugget that I love. My professor said this. He said, the Old Testament's about working for God, and the New Testament is about working with God. And we see that start to happen in the book of Acts in a few dramatic ways. And, and so with our little bit of time together that we have left, I, I just want to kind of look at the ways that the Spirit was working in the early church and the early believers and, and, and just kind of learn from that because we've been promised that same gift and that same power today that they had. So the first thing we see is the Spirit is a catalyst for growth. So after Peter uh, stands up and he recites Joel and he tells the crowd that the Messiah is the Son of God uh, and, and he's just been on earth and they have killed him, he, he's up speaking with this boldness, right? Because, like, remember, Peter's on stage with 11 people and then there's, like, thousands, right? So if they want to start a fight, like, I'm going to put my money probably on, on the thousands, right? But, but Peter stands up and he says this anyway. And we see the Spirit was at work, Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In a few weeks, I'm going to talk about how the Spirit is the great convictor. And part of the Spirit's job was to point out areas of sin and disobedience in our lives. And and the people in the crowd, they were were cut to the heart and they want to respond. And they say, how do we do it? And, And so Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And here Peter answers an important question for us, right? Which is, how do you get the Holy Spirit? And, and he lays out a pretty simple plan, which is repent, be baptized. Like that's, Peter says, you do those things, and, and it's pretty simple. Now, if you study the whole book of Acts, it gets a little more complicated. The, the answer gets a little bit harder because uh, there's some stories that follow this where the Holy Spirit comes at the moment of baptism. 
Uh, there's some stories when men get the Holy Spirit before they're baptized, and so then they need to be baptized. There's some that are baptized, and then they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, and people have to come and pray for them, and then they get the Holy Spirit. And, and I think most of these are God working in a specific way to teach specific people a very specific lesson. But I think it's also a reminder that we can't pin down God and say, this is how you're going to work, God. I'm going to do this and this, and you're going to give me this. Right? That's not the way that our God behaves. That's not the way that things work. But in the Bible, we always see that baptism immediately follows belief. And so for, for Peter, it's believe, take that step of obedience, and you're going to be filled with the Spirit of God. So now back to the story, verse 40 says, With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000, right? I mean, can you imagine, like, if our church grew by, like, three next week, I'd be like, all right, that's a good, that's a good week, right? If we, if we grew by, like, 30, like, Jeff and I, we'd go hit up, like, lunch or something. Like, we'd be, we'd be pumped, right? 300, we wouldn't know what to do. You know, 3,000 people in just a matter of a few hours. And the church, it was, what, like, 11 plus a few people, you know, that they had at that point up to a church of 3,000. How does that happen, right? Well, I mean, what goes on with that? It's because the Spirit is powerful, and that's not the end of the story. If you go to verse 47, you see that the, the church was adding to their number daily. If you go to the start of chapter 4, it says that the new church at that time is about 5,000 people. Um, by chapter 6, they're so big that they start to have to like, they're like, well, we need to create some sort of organization and titles. and job, right? They have to create structure because they've gotten so big and the need is so great that they've got to figure out how to do this thing more effectively. And then something amazing happens. And in chapter 7, there's this man named Stephen, and Stephen is killed for his faith. Okay, Stephen is the first person in the Bible to be killed for his faith. And, and so then Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And you may say, well, well, wait a minute, Ryan, like, that's not amazing, right? That's not, persecution's not a good thing, and I'm not, I'm not hoping for persecution, right? I, I love living in a country where we can come and we can worship and I can tweet what I want and say what I want about God or faith or any of that. But just read the, the rest of verse 1 with me. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout, where? Judea and Samaria. Remember chapter 1? Verse 8, we flip it around. It says, you will receive power, and what's going to happen? You're going to take my name to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the, per- the persecution that started against the church led to rapid growth through the work of the Spirit. And God finds a way for the gospel to cross every racial, ethnic, and social barrier. And these things that used to divide people no longer divides them because they are lost in their love for Jesus, and God used a bunch of normal people, people like you and me, to grow his church. And I guarantee that if we could talk to Peter or John or Paul today, and we could ask them, hey, what did you do? They would say, it's not because we were good speakers. It's not because we were visionaries. It's not because we had the right style of music or because we started the right mission agency or organization in our community. It's because we were being directed by the Holy Spirit. And the disciples and the apostles were just a bunch of guys. I mean, there wasn't anything special on their own. They themselves, they were kind of stuck and powerless. But they had a powerful spirit of God inside of them. That's the same God that's inside you and me.
and he's not done working. He may have already been to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but he's also ready to go to your neighborhood and your place of work and your social circles. And you have access to the powerful spirit of God, and he is a catalyst for growth. Second thing we see is the spirit is a motivator for generosity. I, uh, I wish we had time to, to read into some of these passages this morning, but you can just jot them down in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Uh, these two passages talk about the early church and its generosities, and the generosity and the believers, they would literally, they were giving everything that they had away, right? They weren't like, okay, what's 10%? Let me do it up. Like, they weren't even giving away 11%. It was more than 20 or 30%. They were giving away everything that they have, there was this radical generosity, this, this crazy giving, something that could only be prompted by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in, in Acts chapter 5, there's a, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they kind of want to get in on what's going on. And so they sell some of their property. And, and they come and they say, hey, we sold this property. And we want to give all of the money to the church, right? So the problem is they weren't giving all of the money to the church. They were keeping some back for themselves. And, and so if you know the story, you know that they both just fall dead in the story, just completely, just God just knocks them out. It's not because they didn't give all of it, it's because they were trying to look like they were generous, and they weren't. And God makes a statement from the very beginning of the church that says, that's not how we're going to do things, right? He sets a tone very early that, that we are to give and to be generous and to help others that are in need, and, and I wish we could spend more time, because I, I love talking about generosity, it kind of gets me riled up, it, it's one of my, my favorite things, uh, Matt, our, our care pastor, a few weeks ago, I was talking to him, and he told me that he makes just enough money to support his giving addiction, which I thought was really funny, I, I love that, and I love his heart and his attitude towards generosity, and, and that's a gift that people have, but it leads me into to our, our final note for this morning, which is, the Spirit is the giver of gifts. And we're not talking about presents, right? We're not talking about new cars or fancy homes, but spiritual gifts. There are two places in, in Scripture that list, uh, that are really good lists uh, of, uh, in, in the New Testament of, of spiritual gifts. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And, and if you go through them, you'll, you'll find these. You'll find uh, prophecy, serving, teaching, encouragement, leadership, mercy, healing, and speaking in tongues. Okay? Those things are listed out in the Bible. And, it, and it's important to know that both of these lists are different. And they're both written by the same guys. That kind of tells us, okay, these lists weren't meant to be exhaustive, right? This isn't a resource for us to go to and say, well, these are all, and that's, that's everything there is. Paul is using these kind of as an example of, of what's available and how God uses his people. And, and believe me, we could do a whole series on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, a lot of things uh, that we could break down. But, but the beautiful thing about the spirit, spiritual gifts is, is not based upon your competence, it's not based on how good you are, but how great God is. And you don't receive spiritual gifts to build yourself up, but to honor God and edify the church. And, and we may disagree on this. I, I know a, a lot of people have different views on this, but after, after studying the Bible and what I believe is, I believe that some of us, we have things naturally hardwired into us. That, that God made us good at certain things, whether that's teaching or leadership or compassion, whatever that may be. I think God made you with some spiritual gifts. And then I think there are also moments when God can give you what you need. 
that, that for that instance, this is the gift that you need. And so, you know, I would not say that encouragement, I wouldn't say that's one of my, my spiritual gifts, but I believe that if I walk into a hospital room and somebody needs encouragement, I believe that God can give me the words that I need to say in that moment and to give them encouragement through me. I believe that God can give anyone any gift. But I also believe that Scripture says that not everyone has or needs every gift. And I get very skeptical when a church starts to require you to express certain gifts. Because I don't believe that's how we prove our faith. I'm not sure that's how God works. I had a friend of mine that was attending a a class um, through this mission organization. And and she would call me regularly to ask me questions. Because at the time I I was in in a Christian college. And and so she would call me and kind of find out what I believed. And and one day she called me and she started asking me questions about prophecy. I was like, okay. And so she started asking me different things. And, you know, she said, what do you believe about? And I told her, well, I think it's a spiritual gift. You know, I think that God can give it to people. And and they can honor him with it. And I, I don't think that I've ever done it. I'm not sure that's one, one of my gifts. And then she told me that in that class, the, pref, the professor had, had taught them steps for how to prophesy. And then they practiced it together in the room. And, and I just found this really difficult because I've never opened up the Bible and I've never found those steps, right? And so when someone has answers that I don't have, I'm always like, wait a minute, where, where did these come from? And, and, and I just believe with any spiritual gift, not just that one, but anyone, we can't control God. We can't manipulate him. We can't make him do what we want. All we can do is be ready and open and available if he wants to use us. And if he chooses to, it's going to be an amazing and in a powerful way. And again, we haven't even scratched the surface of how the Spirit works, and we could go on and on about spiritual gifts and what those mean and, and how God has created us and what he desires for us. But really, I, I hope when it's all boiled down, I hope that you hear this this morning, is that you have a powerful, powerful Holy Spirit inside of you. And that gift is available to you if you just believe and follow after God. And and sometimes I think we're so quick to minimize, right? We're so quick to to try to do things on our own and and try to to use our own efforts, and we're afraid to trust God and what he has given us. And so to close the day, I want to read one verse uh, from Paul. It's out of the book of Romans, and this is just going to be my prayer for you guys this morning. He says this in Romans fifteen thirteen. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that one more time. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit.